as we continue uh, our look at hard truths uh, this morning, uh, this week, or whenever you're listening to it and watching it online, uh, we're going to look at one of the most misused, uh, but also most misunderstood uh, verses in Scripture. And because it's misunderstood and because it's misused, uh, it often leads to us believing things or believing something about uh, the truth we're going to look at that uh, really hurts and harms relationships, that hurts and harms our own relationship with God, but also our relationship with each other. And to make matters worse, not only is it one of the most misquoted and misunderstood, I mean, misunderstood and misused, it's one of the most quoted, and so it's often misquoted. And so you add those things together, and there's a recipe for a bit of disaster. Now, whether it's misunderstood because it's misused, uh, or whether it's misused because it's misunderstood, or whether it's misused because it's misquoted. I can't tell you the order of how the things get off. It just is misunderstood, misused, and often misquoted. But here's the beauty. Even though we'll look at how it can be so devastating, I want you to see even more how if we can get this truth right, if we can understand it as Jesus intends, it can lead to a beautiful experience of not only God's transforming power in our lives, uh, but God's transforming power in the lives and the relationships we have with one another. So what's this hard truth? What's this verse? Uh, well, the hard truth is the hard truth about judgment. And I'm not talking about eternal judgment. We're going to look at the hard truth about hell next week. Uh, there's your teaser. Uh, but this is about judgment between people. What's the verse? Well, the verse is Matthew chapter 7 verses one through six, particularly verse one that says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And we'll get there in just a moment. Really this hard truth about judgment. When we think about judgment in the context of human relationships, uh, what do we often think of? We think of people evaluating us, uh, making decisions about our motives, about what we like or, or what we dislike, about what we're, how we're living, whether it's good or not. All of us have probably either said or had someone say to us at some point in time, how can you judge me? Or the shortened version, I just think you're being judgy right now. Or didn't, didn't Jesus say you're not supposed to judge? I've had conversations with people and we may be talking about their life or my life or the life of another person. Like, okay, well, Craig, Craig, time out. Remember, we're not supposed to judge. Why is that one of the most prevalent tattoos in our society is only God can judge me? Usually scrolling, scrolling across the top of some, a man's chest or his back. I've seen it on forearms again and again. Only God can judge me. What's meant by that? What gives you the right to say that what I'm doing is right or wrong? Who, who, who gives you the authority to tell me how I can live? Ultimately, when people say, um, you can't judge me, they mean just kind of a, a, nuanced, it's a nuanced way of saying, uh, you do you and let me do me. You mind your own business and I'll mind mine. That's often what we mean when we speak and we think of judgment. But is that what Jesus intends? Because if we're going to quote Jesus, we probably ought to understand what Jesus meant when he said something. And I think most people that even use the expression, you can't judge me, you're not supposed to judge, didn't God say don't judge other people, they don't even realize the connection it has to Jesus himself. And so what I wanna do this morning is help us see Jesus and his words and let him teach us what they mean. Because if we move away from Jesus, 
we, we lose out on the life and the hope of what Jesus is communicating. And the words that Jesus communicates in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, verses one through six, are actually life-giving words. And they're, they're words that if we adhere to them, they're words if we follow them, actually bring us into relationships that are full and whole and authentic relationships that help us transform to be more and more the people that God has designed us and created us to be. And I don't know about you, but I want that. I want to have full and whole and authentic relationships. I, I want to experience relationships that not only just mean having a good time with one another, but they lead to me transforming and being a better person. I want God to transform my life. I want to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. And so I want to get Jesus' words right. So my hope is in leaning into the words of Matthew chapter seven, not only can we address some of the ways we've misused and misunderstood and misquoted his words, but even more, I want you to see the hope and the joy and the life and the beauty that's found in what Jesus communicates in Matthew chapter seven. So if you have your Bibles, find Matthew chapter seven. Matthew seven uh, is what we would call moving towards the end or the conclusion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's, it's a message that Jesus gave towards the beginning of his earthly ministry. It's a message that probably, a sermon that probably was repeated in village after village, town after town, city after city. Uh, the, the, the message, the sermon details kind of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Like what are the characteristics of someone who is living for God the way Jesus wants them to? It's a beautiful message. Uh, oftentimes we, we, we believe that this is a, a message that was communicated in town after town, city after city, because if you look at Luke's gospel, uh, he shares in around chapter six a similar message, but it's nuanced. It's a little bit different. It takes place in a different location. So Jesus just probably took opportunity after opportunity to share with people as they were following him, this is what I'm all about. This is who I am. Uh, if you're gonna follow me, this is what you're signing up for. This is what you're, you're going all in for. And I want you to know it up front. By this point in Jesus' life, the crowds are growing, they're, they're swelling. Jesus has healed. Jesus has made personal invitations to people to come and to follow him, which means come, learn from me, be my apprentice, be my disciple, um, discover how I want you to live. And so the crowds are growing. People are sometimes just curious. People sometimes are dedicated. Some of the people are opposed. And so Jesus needs to take advantage of opportunities like this to, to share, okay, guys, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what following me really means. And that's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And within that context, within that message, he speaks about judgment. So I just wanna read verses one through six to start, and then we'll walk through them uh, a little more uh, detailed. Matthew 7, one says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. 
If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus just starts off, do not judge or you too will be judged. So what is Jesus saying? What does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean, as we often associate with the idea of judgment, um, do not evaluate the actions of other people uh, according to a certain standard. Do, do, do not even look at their life. Do not even think about what their choices are and what their actions are and try to make any determinations. Is Jesus just giving us the first century version of you do you and let them do them and I'll do me? Is that what Jesus is suggesting? Uh, the short answer, and I think you know this, is the answer is no. How do we know that Jesus is not saying we should refrain from evaluating people? Well, because of what Jesus even suggests in the immediate context of these verses, he, he moves directly into um, this, this comical picture of looking at the speck of sawdust in someone's eye without paying attention to the plank in our own eye. The piece of sawdust would mess with the person's vision. It's not something that belongs there. It's not something that should be there. And so Jesus is saying, how are you to look and identify what shouldn't be in someone else's life when you yourself have your own things that shouldn't be there. But the aim is not that you don't evaluate, because look at verse five. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus' intent is not that we wouldn't evaluate. He's saying there will come a place, if you remove the plank from your eye first, you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's saying there's a place for evaluating. How do you know what's a speck? How do you know what doesn't belong unless you're evaluating someone's life based upon a standard? So Jesus can't be saying, don't evaluate the actions of other people according to a standard, in this case, his standard. Other evidence for this is in verse 6. He talks about not giving dogs what is sacred and not throwing pearls to pigs. Dogs and pigs were both considered unclean or filthy animals. So he says, do not give what is sacred to those who are unclean. Do not give pearls. Jesus uses the term pearl to describe the kingdom of heaven and the beauty and the value of the kingdom elsewhere. Jesus, what he's sharing is there comes a time and place when we cannot continue to entrust the beautiful and wonderful things of God, the message of God to people who will just abuse it and trample it. Well, how do you determine who's abusing and trampling the message of God unless you evaluate? Don't you have to look at their life and say, well, are they, are they continuing to reject what God has in mind, what God wants for them? Yeah, you have to evaluate. So Jesus can't be talking about evaluation, about simply looking at the actions of other people's lives. But that's so often what we mean, isn't it? Only God can judge me. Hey, who are you to evaluate my life? Who are you to determine whether what I'm doing is good or bad, beneficial or harmful? When you think about evaluation, evaluation always implies a standard. There's a standard, there's a criteria and we look to that thing or that person and we compare. This last week at our fairgrounds and for the coming week, there will be people judging, judging 4-H projects from living 4-H projects like animals to uh, 4-H projects like cakes and leatherworks and wood projects and photographs. Uh, there will be a number of people judging, and what are they doing? They're looking at a criteria and a standard, and they're evaluating. They're comparing. They're saying, okay, compared to our standard, this is the evaluation of what is good, what is not good about this project. 
For a disciple of Jesus, we need evaluation first and foremost for ourselves. Jesus supplies the standard. Jesus supplies the criteria. His words, God's words supplies the criteria. And so we need to be able to evaluate and say, okay, this is what God wants. How am I matching up to that? Because if I can measure my life against Jesus and against his words, that's what can spur me on to being more like him. So we need evaluation. Jesus can't be talking about evaluation. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, ultimately, Jesus is talking about the heart, the heart that lies behind the evaluation. But even something uh, probably even more difficult is that there are some who come to a place where they think that they can sit in the seat of God and make determinations about someone's life and their relationship with God and the motives of their heart. Jesus is talking more about condemning and condescension than he is evaluation. How do we know that? Well, if you look at Luke's account of a similar teaching by Jesus, he speaks about not judging, and he also says, don't condemn. It's not our place to take the seat that God gets to determine whether someone by their actions has a relationship with God or not. That's not our job. But ultimately, Jesus is talking about the heart here. Like, what lies behind that? Do we think that we are better than other people? What angle do we come at when we look to someone's life? Are we coming as someone who has it all figured out and says, you know, I'm perfect and, and I know all the right things and look at you, you're screwing up your life? Or do we come from a different angle that says, you know what, I'm broken and I've been messed up and God has helped me. So can I help you encounter him and what he can do for you? That's what's proposed in verses three through five. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is not a very big plank, um, but I think it'll do the trick. Jesus proposes just a very comical picture for his listener to think about. Again, a speck and the plank, uh, they both represent something that's not supposed to be there that distorts the vision. And Jesus just simply says, how can you identify the speck in someone else's eye if you have this plank in your own eye? Like, it's ludicrous, right? To think that if, if you come to me and, and you say, man, there's something right here that's really bothering me. If I try to come in like this, I'm gonna do more harm than good, right? You're gonna be ducking. I'm gonna be stabbing you and knocking out the good eye. Like, there's gonna be a mess that unfolds because I haven't dealt with the plank in my own eye. So Jesus is giving this, this, this powerful word picture of, hey, when you see something in someone else that's harmful, that's not supposed to be there, then your first course of action is to look at yourself first. What's, what's in your life? What's there that's distorting your vision? What's there that, that shouldn't be there? Before you evaluate someone else, before you try to take the seat of God, how about you evaluate yourself and look in the mirror first? He uses that powerful expression, hypocrite, in verse five a term that, that would refer to an actor, someone who wears a mask. He's like, there are people that are deceived and they, 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 they think that their lives are so good, that they're so clean, that they have nothing wrong with them. And they, they love to sit in the seat of judgment and say, you know, here's where you need to get better. 
He's like, don't be a hypocrite. First deal with the plank in your own eye. What is it in your life that is not in alignment with what God wants? And then from that position of brokenness and weakness and humility, then you can evaluate someone else and come alongside of them and to help them. Jesus ultimately is talking about motive and posture in helping people. And in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's looking at this relationship between other people. A disciple of Jesus understands that if they're going to be in relationship and in community with other people in a way that honors God, they can't come from a posture of arrogance, of pride, of assuming that they are the authority, but they come from a posture of brokenness. No, God is our standard. Let me help you as he has helped me. That's what it looks like to judge someone in a way that honors God is that we start with ourselves. We start with the errors in our own lives. The reason why only God can judge me has become a popular tattoo and a popular sentiment, I think, is because many people have been hurt by others who have first gone and tried to point out what's wrong in someone else's life before they look in the mirror at themselves. But if we can become people who look first at our plank, then we have the capacity to come alongside someone else. So how can this hard truth shape our life? Well, one of the things I want us to understand and what I want to understand, I want to reaffirm that I, I share these messages on hard truths not as someone who has them all figured out, not as someone who's doing it perfectly, but I genuinely come as someone who is living this alongside of you. I struggle at times to put myself in a position where, you know what? I'm a little bit better. I've got this figured out. Look at them, you know, kind of squandering their lives away. I wrestle with those very same temptations sometimes, and I need these reminders just as much as you need these. I need these hard truths just as much as you need these. And with these hard truths of Jesus, they give us this opportunity to kind of live this revolutionary life. And, and the same is true with this hard truth about judgment. If, if we can understand what Jesus truly means, then we won't misuse it. We won't misunderstand it. We won't misquote it. We won't do the damage that has been done in the past. And sometimes, because the way we've misused his words on judgment, and we just say, you know what, you can't evaluate me. You, you can't even think about my life. Um, it keeps me from inviting other people to speak into my life. I shared with you the very first week of this series about hard truths, that there are things that we need to have spoken to us, but what makes them hard truths is that we don't want them spoken to us. And I share with you the story of how our Care and Connections minister, Kurt, who shared our communion and hosted here this morning, how early on in my ministry here, he observed an interaction between me and my youngest son and he wanted to talk with me about it. And, and I shared with you that week that um, when, when he was kind of calling me out about my behavior as a father, that some of you would say, well, that's not his right to meddle. It's not his right to judge. And in first service, a lot of you were just kind of, you know, stoic and, and, and no responses. But second service, there were giggles and there was laughter. Like people were like, yeah, right. He shouldn't be telling you what to do. But here's the truth. He should have been telling me what to do. And I'm glad he did. Because that's the type of judgment that we need as followers of Jesus to grow and to be better. And Kurt did not come alongside me from a place of superiority or a place of arrogance. 
he came to me as one who was a father who knew brokenness and weakness. And he said, Craig, I think God has something better for you in your relationship with your son. And so he could evaluate me. He could evaluate my actions based upon the standard of Jesus and the standard of God's word. And he could speak into my life and that helps me get better. We need to understand the hard truth about judgment because we don't understand the hard truth about judgment. We won't get to the hard truth about accountability. Like we need other people to speak into our lives. All of us have blind spots. We, we've taught in this room before about the words of Jeremiah where he says the heart is deceptive above all else. Like we can't just follow our hearts. We are deceived at times. And there are blind spots in our lives we think we have figured out and we don't. And we need people who love us, who are on the journey with us, who are taking planks out of their own eyes and they're willing to help us with the speck in our eyes. We need that to become more and more the people that he wants us to be. And if we believe the lie that you can't evaluate other people, you can't speak into their life, guess what? We'll end up with a lot of toxic people. We need people who are dedicated to Jesus and people investing and holding them accountable. We need to unlock the beauty of the hard truth about judgment. So how do we do it? How, how, do we, how do we come to this place where we can operate from this posture of humility, this posture of grace, this posture of compassion and truth that, that's able to deal with our own plank and help people with their speck? I think it starts by just honest time in the word ourselves. If we're practicing the spiritual disciplines of reading his word and asking God to speak to us and convict us and to point out in us what's wrong, if we're coming to him in prayer and saying, God, what is, what is it you want to do in me? What is it you want to correct in me? It gives him that space to deal with us. And that, and that, and that space, we are humbled and we see our errors and that positions us to be the weak and broken people that can come alongside and help others. We check our motives. When we want to point out something in someone else's life, we honestly need to ask ourselves, why am I doing that? Is it because it makes me feel good to point out a flaw in someone else? I mean, if we're honest, if we check our motives, doesn't that happen sometimes? I just wanna point out what's wrong with you because it makes me feel a little bit better that maybe I don't have that wrong with me right now. What's your motive in that? Is your motive that you genuinely want to help and come alongside? Check your motives. Look to his words, spiritual disciplines, check your motives, ask questions. You know that if you see a therapist, a counselor, um, a psychologist, they will ask you question after question after question. Very seldom do they start by saying, you know what, what you're doing is really wrong. No, they ask questions. They invite you to think along with them. And so when someone does something that's not right, maybe they're sharing with you uh, in the office or maybe a child comes and they says, hey, this is a decision I made. And everything in your mind says, whoa, that was stupid. You shouldn't have done that. Maybe instead of saying that, you say, how do you feel about that? What, what have been the consequences? What's happened in your life because of that? And you invite them into the questions and it gives space to more come alongside them rather than coming from an angle that seems condescending or condemning. We have to remember that Jesus never called us to be people of condemnation and condescension. I love what the um, old Asian preacher D.T. Nile says. He was from what we now call Sri Lanka. Um, and he said that evangelism and living for the kingdom is about one hungry beggar helping another hungry beggar find food. And I need to come from a place of, 
of brokenness to help people. The fourth thing I would give you is, if you want to come from a posture of grace and compassion and truth, is to make sure that what you are evaluating in someone else is truly a standard presented by God's word. Some of what's messed up the voice of some Christians in our world is that we make something that's a preference a matter of biblical fact, and that hurts. I can remember an experience when I was in college. We'd gone down, they used to call spring break at Johnson Bible College, now Johnson University, the week of evangelism. So they encouraged you, instead of just going and hanging out uh, with friends or going to California or Florida to, to go and do a service project. And, and so a group of us, uh, after our freshman, that, that spring of our freshman year, said, why don't we go uh, to where we lived in Southeast Georgia, where people were going on the beach for spring break, and why don't we go do beach ministry for a whole week it sounded really great in our heads. We had really great plans. We did very little evangelism. But the point was we had pure motives, right? Anyway, on that trip, we, we, we worship at my home church, which was a fairly restrictive uh, Christian church. And one of the gentlemen that had come on our trip, actually two of them, wore hats into our church that evening uh, for church service. And one of the elders of that church pulled aside those two college students that were my friends and said, you know what? Uh, you can't wear a hat in church. And thankfully, um, those friends kind of spoke up for themselves, like, I'm not really sure where I see that in Scripture. And they had an honest conversation, gentle conversation. They wore their hats the rest of church, and I was glad. But I had a conversation with those elders later, and they're like, why, why do your friends who love Jesus wear hats in church? And I was like, didn't we have this conversation? But they were applying a preference and making it a matter of biblical fact and judging someone's character and judging someone's life based upon something that wasn't even a standard in Scripture. How often do we do that? So make sure that the standards we're holding people to are truly in Scripture. And by the way, if you're wearing a hat, I'm glad you are. In all honesty, I'd like to be wearing a hat when I preach, seriously. But I know that some of you would get really upset and you would think I'm a horrible person if I do that. And so I don't because I don't want to deal with the emails and the phone calls. But I, I think that we need to, to make sure that the standards we're holding people to are truly scriptural standards, right? Since when does something that we wear define our heart? Now, sometimes it can reveal something, but, but oftentimes it doesn't. And the list could go on and on. And the, the, the fifth thing I want to give you is that we have to be careful not to hold believers to the same standards. Um, to, we, don't, we can't hold pre-believers or unbelievers to the same standards we hold believers. There's some words of Paul that we would be wise to remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, Paul's addressing sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. The particular act he's looking at is a case of incest. And here's what he writes. He says, what business, this is verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. As Paul writes to this church who's wrestling with these issues, he reminds them, it's not our job to judge those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Sometimes 
followers of Jesus have gotten a bad rap in our world because we've chosen to hold people who don't believe in our God to the standards of our God. And so we're quick to tell people who don't even love our Jesus how their lives are incongruent with Jesus. And guess what that does? That just pushes people further away from our Jesus. What's the answer? What's the answer that Paul demonstrates is the answer that we see even in the book of Acts is that our lives are the witness. And so you can have a conversation with someone and they believe something that's incongruent or goes against what God's best is. And in your conversation, they ask you what you feel and you can say, well, this is what I believe. And that can create a conversation, but it shouldn't lead to us condescending. We have to be careful not to hold pre-believers or unbelievers to the standards and criteria that believers are held to. Let them see it in our lives. I think it's Peter that writes about being, willing, being ready to give a defense uh, for what we believe, but it's with our life. Our lives are the apologetic. Not going out and standing on a box on a street corner with a bullhorn and telling everybody how they're living is wrong. Do we pray for those people? Yes. Do we have hope for them? Yes. Do we, do we come and we walk alongside of them when they ask questions, give them honest answers? Yes. But do we condescend? No. I, I want to invite you to just think of uh, what this could do. If we could adopt Jesus' teaching and his hard truth on judgment and get beyond the misunderstandings and the misuse and the misquoting, uh, what could happen? What could happen in your family? Our kids watch us, parents, if you have kids at home. How often have they seen us evaluate, not from a place of brokenness, but speak about their friends or people we pass on the street and point out what's wrong in their life and kind of take the seat of God? What would happen if that changed? How could we help them see the world differently? Well, what could happen with your siblings instead? Maybe you have a sibling that doesn't love Jesus and you do. What would happen if instead of pointing out what was wrong in their life, you demonstrated your life and what it means to follow Jesus and gave them opportunities to ask questions and be this living witness to them instead of always pointing out what was wrong? But what would happen in your workplace? What would happen in your workplace if you weren't quick to judge from a seat of like taking the authority of God, but instead started with the place of brokenness when you had a conversation with a coworker. What would happen in our world? What would happen in our community? We would see people changed and people humbled and there would be this beautiful expression of relationship among people if we abided by Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter seven. And here's what I know. I know that all of us, if we're followers of Jesus in this room, uh, this probably ushers in a time of repentance for us um, because we have gotten this wrong. None of us are perfect. And I'd encourage you to maybe think about relationships in your own life that, that you perhaps have hopefully not ruined, but maybe uh, affected in a negative way by a judgmental spirit. And then uh, and maybe repent of that and say, God, help me, change me. Help me know how to interact with these people in my life who, who I maybe have been more condemning of and condescending towards. And here's the invitation for those who don't know Jesus. Remember that God's people are not an ultimate picture of who God is. We're striving. But don't let the failures of his people keep you from seeing the, seeing the faithfulness of who God is. 
And would you see that Jesus cares about you and he, he wants to invite you into authentic relationships that are free of harsh judgment, but instead foster um, the growth that leads to being like him and experiencing the best life available through him and in him. And if you don't yet know him, if, you not, if you're on the fence about Jesus, we'd love to start that conversation with you. Um, Kurt has shared already, you can connect with us through our connection cards. You can scan the QR code in the buildings that say, let's connect. You can email us, connect at Lebanon Christian. You can start a conversation with me or one of our elders here at the front of the room, and we can help you meet this Jesus who wants to invite you into this life that he's, he's describing in Matthew chapter 7. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your hard truth about judgment. And God, I know that um, all of us in this room have probably both been hurt uh, by words that were not measured, uh, by people who maybe moved in with a plank still in their eye. And God, it's likely that all of us in this room have been the one to move in with a plank as well. God, would you help us be people who look to your word, who love those around us enough uh, that we would speak into their lives only as we've allowed you to speak into ours. And God, as we respond to your hard truth about judgment, may we be changed and may the people we interact with be changed. And may we show the world another one of the beautiful mysteries of your kingdom. In your name we pray and trust the name of Jesus.